Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome listeners to your Creepy Wednesday episode. Today I have two Let's Not Make Creepy stories, one involving a possible kidnapping if it was successful, and an eerie case of a stalker almost getting their way. And a big thank you to Hiccups Capone and ZinginQE30 for your stories. I also have for you three horror stories for your Wednesday tale, titled A Month of Rain, The Shadow King, and The Happy Crow. Yeah, a jam-packed episode. Turn the lights off, the sound up, and let's listen to something different. The time I almost got kidnapped, or possibly murdered. This happened when I was in high school long ago. My mum just recently found the paperwork about it when she cleaned out her office upon retiring from the police department. I remember being upset and scared when it happened, but reading the details as an adult, it sounded even worse than I remembered. I was 17 at the time, working at a flower and gift shop. It's night time. A man comes in. Short, overweight, balding, 40s, creepy. He tells me about how he needs an apology gift for his girlfriend. So I offer a bouquet. Obviously, it's a flower shop. He says he doesn't like flowers because they die. This was the first weird thing, as he came into a flower shop. Then, he goes into detail about how he hit her, and asks me if I think he was right to do so. This was long ago, so I don't remember exactly what I said. But it was something along the lines of, Not if you want her to continue being your girlfriend. He then tells me what a great job I'm doing and asks when I get off work. I dodge answering. He leaves. Nothing. For six months. Then right before Valentine's Day, he walks in the door one minute before closing. It was dark, and from the outside it looked like I was working alone as my co-worker, about 40 at the time, was in the bathroom. Instinctively, it felt like a predator had just entered the room. You know when something isn't right, and everything felt not right. I then notice he has a tarnished revolver tucked into the front of his windbreaker, which is halfway unzipped. It was obvious he wanted it seen. I quickly scribbled a note to my coworker that said, He has a gun, and handed it to her when she came out of the bathroom. She calmly walked to the phone and looked at me, wordlessly asking if she could call the cops. I shook my head, no, as I felt it would escalate the situation. God forbid he heard the police coming and took us hostage or something. I was just going to try and act as calm and normal as I could, and hopefully not tip situation into something more dangerous. He spends 15 minutes wandering around what was a fairly small shop. In retrospect, he was probably waiting to see if my coworker would leave as it was now well past closing. Finally, he places an order for a pickup on Valentine's Day, which gives me his name and info for the police report that I sure as hell am about to file. 
He buys a card and pulls out a wad of $100 bills, which he slowly thumbs through as though looking for the right one with which to pay for his $40 order. I ask him if he wants a bag, as it wouldn't be very inconspicuous if he just showed up at home with the Valentine's card. He replies, No, I don't feel like being inconspicuous tonight, which seemed like an obvious reference to the gun hanging out of his coat. He leaves. We quickly lock the door and watch him sit in his truck outside. We were not about to exit the shop until he was gone. Finally, he pulls out of his parking spot and moves to another spot further away and continues to just sit there. I don't know how long we waited, but he finally left. I called my mum crying. She called the police who came to the shop the next day to take a report. I told my best friend at the time what happened. She told her mother. Her mother happened to work with the man and informed security at her job. She said he was very weird, creepy, and liked to talk about weapons a lot. Security at his job. It's a large company with government contracts and things having to deal with tech and security. Pulled him into the office and questioned him about it. He claimed it was a glove in his pocket, not a revolver. The police were pissed that his company made contact with him about it before they did, and he successfully dodged the cops' multiple calls and visits to his apartment. My mum, much to my teen fury at the time, made me quit my job, which was devastating as I loved it there. In retrospect, totally the right call. Dude came in on Valentine's Day and picked up his order. I never saw him again. Followed on the subway. This happened to me in the summer of 2015. I was dating a guy who lived in the city, and I was living at home at the time in the suburbs. Neither of us had a car, and since I lived at home with my bedroom right next to my grandma's, I always went to him. I'd take the subway to his place every week, and stay for the couple of days I had off from work. To get to his apartment required taking two trains. One day I was headed to see him. It was super hot and I was wearing a skirt with straps, a crop top and knee-high socks. Hey, I wanted to look cute. I guess I feel this is important as I probably stood out in this outfit and unfortunately I probably should have been more careful about what I was wearing, which sucks. Anyway, I'm on the first train and after a few stops I notice a man get on. I kind of couldn't not notice him as he chose to stand right in front of where I was sitting and stare at me, rather than take an empty seat. It made me feel weird. The man in general gave me a very creepy vibe. He was probably in his 40s, looked unkempt, but otherwise kind of just a basic looking white dude whose face I can't even picture now. So I get off at the last stop and head through the station to where I need to catch the second train, but I notice this guy is following me which at first I figured wasn't a big deal. He could have been just going to the same place. So to get to the platform, I needed to go up some stairs and I realized he's right behind me. I decided to turn around and go to a different platform, which happened to be packed with people. Thinking if he follows me there, this is bad, but maybe I can lose him in the crowd. He follows me and I try to duck out of view before going back to the actual platform I needed to be waiting on. 
I get there and for a few minutes I feel better. Until I see him again. He must have known I'd be there after I'd gone up there and then turned around. Plus, it was the only other platform and most likely he saw me the whole time. There weren't too many people waiting compared to the other side, but a few trains came that were so full, I didn't bother to try and get on and neither did he. The whole time, I am texting my boyfriend, who was not taking me seriously at all. I asked that he at least meet me at the station when I got to the top by his apartment, a five-minute walk, and was being reluctant, but agreed finally. At this point, though, I'm still waiting for a train. One comes that's very full, but I'm getting restless and want to get to a safe place, so I squeeze on, and so does the man right next to me with his arm over me. I decide that even with all these people around, I'm not safe. So right before the doors close, I hop out, and the train leaves with the guy on it staring at me as it pulled away. I waited for a few more trains to come and go, worried the guy would be waiting for me at the next stop or something. I got on a train finally, paying attention to everyone who got on at each stop. He never did, and I made it to my bus stop greeted by my boyfriend who seemed to be put out having to walk over to see me. He is an ex-boyfriend and was generally kind of shitty. I'm proud of myself for getting off that train at the last second. I don't know how much danger I was in, but I know that man was following me and definitely wasn't for any wholesome reason. And despite being in public, I feel like if he had tried anything, no one would have done shit. And I am very small and not a strong person. And that is my story. And now for some creepy fictional stories. A month of rain. So just a couple of minutes ago, I came across a thread in the forums asking the reader if they had any paranormal or creepy things happen to them. Well, it got me thinking about this one time I was evacuated from my childhood town. I must have been about seven at the time, and I can somewhat remember the event clearly, even if most of it's pretty hard to recall. Since all you guys are looking for a good spook, I'll give it a shot and tell the tale. So, in my childhood town... I had a good friend named Finny. Finny and I were really close, almost like brothers. I was an only child growing up and I hung out with Finny almost every day if memory serves. My childhood memories were so precious and the town itself was so peaceful and benevolent. The town was surrounded by woods and it even had its own police station and town hall. Everything was picture perfect. Everything was fine until there was a month of rain. When I say a month of rain, I literally mean it. It would never stop raining. It rained that whole month non-stop. And it was kind of strange, since the rain came in unannounced by meteorologists. It was almost similar to that of a hurricane, with strong winds, thunder, lightning, and lengthy periods of rain. It almost came out of nowhere. It just started pouring. The sky went dim and gloomy. The clouds rolled in. The rain fell and it continued for as long as I could remember. Eventually the ponds, canals and rivers would start rising due to the heavy rain. The flooding all took place within the first two weeks. 
I remember this one night, when it was thundering. I was looking outside my window. I noticed that the lightning had strange colors. Some would look orange, others would look green, and some even purple. This made the rain fall even harder. Eventually, the waters had gotten so high that it reached up to our ankles. We would still go to school since they thought the floods weren't too big a deal. They made us wear raincoats, boots, and also made us take umbrellas with us every day. We all took notice that there was an outbreak of insomnia among us children at the time, ever since the rain arrived. I found it hard to sleep as well, and it was one of the many reasons I looked at the lightning at night. We all felt so drawn to the rain, and found it strangely soothing and calming. The lights continued in the sky every night, until eventually there was the loudest thunderstrike. At least I thought it was. I bet it woke up the whole town. It struck somewhere within the woods, and then things got weird. Every night, we'd hear weird noises, voices, whispers, and scratching outside. Sinkholes or burrows could be found all over patios, lawns, gardens, and the woods. The water rose up to our waists, and eventually school was called off on occasion. My friend Finney and some other kids in our clique would visit my house often to play. Sometimes they might even stay the night. I remember this one time, waking up one night and being drawn to the window. We were in our living room and my other friend Bryce was looking outside the window. I felt enticed to look out when I awoke. He and two other kids were at the window looking outside as if intrigued. They said that someone was calling out to them and inviting them out to play inside the rain. We looked outside and saw nothing. A few minutes passed as we continued to look out the window, feeling strangely enticed to go outside. Eventually the rain hit harder, and it also appeared that something was swimming in my flooded backyard. It never emerged from the water to show us its identity or what it was. We just assumed it was the rain making weird patterns in the water as it hit it. The urge to go outside remained, and we began hearing whispers again. They usually ranged from, Come outside. It is safe. Or, Come play with us. Most of what someone would say to convince a child to come out of a hiding spot. My dad came home, and we pretended to sleep since it was way past our bedtimes. My dad was a police officer and was working hard lately, but my friends and I did not know why. I remember my dad walking in and speaking to my mother. He said that kids were disappearing, one by one. They've had no luck catching the kidnapper, and that the abductions were taking place much more frequently. It was true. Walter, Lee, Jennifer and many others didn't show up at school, or any type of meeting place we would visit. I remember his face being so discouraged and worried, almost sickened. I remember my mum and dad's conversation as my friends and I laid awake, listening to every detail. We couldn't find a single trace. Some were even taken from home, and there were no signs of forced entry. He said, and my mother sat next to him trying to comfort him. Other conversations went on, but nothing too relevant to what was happening at the time, 
and they eventually went to bed. However, before they did, they made sure to lock all doors and close all curtains. My friends and I stayed up talking about what we'd just heard, and made up our own little ideas on what was happening, but all too childish. From time to time, the whispers would return and wake us up. Sometimes it was even scratching or clawing at the walls or windows. We wouldn't dare to open the curtains and see what it was for ourselves. Who could blame us? I mean, there was a madman that kidnapped children on the loose. These events went on for weeks and the kidnappings only got worse. Houses were found empty in the morning and sometimes some kids would be left behind, too traumatized to speak and alone in the house with, again, no signs of forced entry. The town was mortified, and eventually a town meeting was called. Some of my friends were missing too, and all that was left of my clique was Finney and Delton. We waited outside the courthouse with my mum as it went on. I remember asking about what they were talking about, but my mother would always avoid telling me usually by saying, Some very boring stuff grown-ups talk about, dear. Or, You're too young, you wouldn't understand. Plus, you'd probably fall asleep. It's pretty long, honey. I remember the night before the evacuation, exactly one day before the month finished. I lived next door to Delton, and it was the night that I saw them leave. The lights didn't even go on, they sort of just went out of the house, leaving everything behind. They didn't bother to lock the door, they didn't bother to pack, and they didn't bother to change clothing. They left their front door and they walked into the woods. I was assuming they were taking a shortcut, but I still found it pretty strange. It was drizzling a bit as they left, and the rain was beginning to die down. I started hearing whispers again, only much louder. I looked out of my window and looked at the flooded streets. I saw strange patterns in the water again, and as if it was trailing a moving object under the water. I remembered that there was a crazy person stealing children at night and decided to close my curtains so that no one could see into my room. Then the clawing and scratching began. The whispers and scratching never left, and I was surprised I even fell asleep. I was woken up by my mother, and the sound of the emergency evacuation alarm that the town hall had set off. I was too groggy to panic, and I just followed my mum outside. We were going through our escape route that went through higher terrain within the woods, and we took a dirt road. As we plodded through the water, we met with Finney and his mother. They both talked for a while as we paused, awaiting others to join us. My father and a couple of his squad came through the road bearing shotguns and flashlights. My mother asked him what he was doing, and my father only replied, We found the place where they were keeping the children. In the grimmest of expressions I've ever seen. My mother kissed him goodbye and wished him and his squad good luck as they trudged through the murky, muddy waters and into the deep woods. My mum motioned for me to come with her, but suddenly another woman came asking for help. My mum told me and Finney to stay put as she left with Finney's mother to assist the woman. We did as we were told and stood in the muddy and murky waters. We began to hear faint whispers again, and felt soothingly relaxed. The feeling was ominous, and it persisted for the duration that we spent waiting for our mothers to return. 
I remember tripping into the water, or so I thought, until I couldn't seem to stand up. I panicked when I felt a force pulling me into the water, and as I heard Finney's panicked screams, I felt a hand grab tightly onto my shoulder and pull me to the surface. My mother carried me and placed me onto a nearby fence and checked on me. I thought I probably tripped into a sinkhole or a deep area of the trail since there were many holes around here. I noticed Finney's mother calling out his name and searching everywhere for him. I didn't realize that Finney had fallen in with me too. I continued thinking it was the sinkhole we slipped into, and that's what I told Finney's mother and my mum. That is, until I felt a throbbing pain and a bruise on my ankle. Upon inspecting it, we found that a skinny, bony handprint was left on it. Another loud clash of lightning occurred, and it began to rain again. We eventually reached high ground, and we got into the buses and cars that waited for us. Many of the cars there were loved ones and family that came to pick up the townsfolk that evacuated. We found that my uncle was waiting for us, and we got in his car. I didn't see my dad or Finney at the evacuation area. Come to think of it, I never saw my dad or his squad again. They were announced missing, and to this day I'm still not sure what happened to them or Finney, along with all the other children. I am certain of one thing. There was something in the water. Written by Havoc98 The Shadow King Throughout history, varied sightings from around the world concerning a still-unknown organism, dubbed the Shadow King, have been documented, although most have been dismissed as either hoaxes, mistaken identity, or simply some form of hysteria. The sheer number of reported sightings have caused various endeavors into scientific research regarding this creature. To date, its habits, diet, and so forth remain elusive to this day. The following is a small sample of the known sighting of the Shadow King throughout history. As with any cryptid sightings, these reports should be taken with a healthy dose of skepticism. The first documented report of the creature occurred in 1937, when archaeologists uncovered the mummified remains of an unknown animal. Sent remains were sent to the Smithsonian, but were quickly dismissed as being faked. At the time, it was thought that hoaxers had hastily stitched together random animal parts, wrapped them in plaster, and then chemically aged them to appear centuries old. However, recent studies and modern-day DNA testing indicated that the specimen was very much real. That being said, scientists have yet to determine exactly what sort of creature it had been prior to its death and mummification. In 1955, Billy Johnson, age 15 around the time of the incident, and his friends were on their way to a local diner in Louisville, Kentucky, for some burgers and sodas. During their walk there, as it was only a few short blocks from where Billy lived, their neighbor's Yorkshire Terrier, whom Billy referred to as Twinkles, appeared to be agitated by something in the distance. The boys, thinking the Terrier was simply barking at a squirrel, continued on their way to the diner before hearing a yelp, followed by a loud tearing sound. Billy then stated that, upon turning around, 
He saw that the dog was gone and the rope leash she had been tethered to was torn. He quickly notified police about the incident, though they were unable to find any of Twinkle's remains. Police ruled the dog's unfortunate fate as a tragic accident and made an official statement that she had been snatched by a hungry eagle. Ornithologists conducting research at the same time as the incident, however, had stated that there was no sightings of eagles near where the incident had happened. The following is a transcript of an interview following an incident that occurred near Yellowstone National Park during the year of 1983. Game Warden Now, can you tell me what happened earlier this evening? Male voice I, I don't know. One moment I was driving, it was dark, and it came out of nowhere. Just appeared on the road. It just appeared. <sighs> More like it ran onto the road, but I swear... I didn't see it until it was too late. I slammed the brakes, but I... Oh, I hit it. There was this thud, and oh, I get sick just thinking about it. I see. Now, did you get out of your car to see what it was you hit? Yes, but... But what? <clears throat> it, it was gone. What do you mean by gone? I mean that it must have gotten up and run off. I tried to see where it had went, honest. But it was so dark and I couldn't see anything past my car's headlights. Could you at least make out what it was you hit? Perhaps I could send some troops out and we can see if whatever you hit is injured or not. A bear, maybe? I don't know. A deer? I mean, it was big like a bear, but it had horns or antlers or something. And it moved weird on all fours, uh, kind of like a kangaroo. A kangaroo? Uh, yeah. You know, like its arms were shorter than its legs, so it kind of shuffled on all fours. Or, um, maybe it was sick. I don't know. <clears throat> well, it appears that you probably hit a sick moose or possibly just some farmer's cow that wandered off. I don't see any need to press charges since the whole thing was an accident. You're free to go and drive safely. The most recent incident happening during Chinese New Year on 2013 Beijing, at least 400 sightings of what had been described as a large horned reptilian creature roaming about. Although video footage has been recorded, the government had seized all cell phones, cameras and other recording devices. Most of the footage has been destroyed, though small snippets can be found online from time to time and those caught recording the incident were arrested. To date, the Chinese government has denied any reported sighting of creatures, and have gone on record saying that the whole thing is little more than a childish prank causing mass hysteria. Those who had participated in the celebrations at the time, however, have stated that what they had seen, and what had been recorded, was very real. Many attempts have been made to scrutinize what little footage has been salvaged on the internet, but there is far too little to make any conclusive evidence of what exactly happened that day. As of 2016, there have been no sightings of the Shadow King. To date, it is unknown what the creature was, where it came from, and whether or not it is real or merely another in a long line of hoaxes revolving around the more enigmatic part of nature. Though no specimens have been studied since the mummified remains found in 1937, marine biologists in Ontario 
Canada, who made a remarkable discovery when a large fleshy mass washed on shore. The mass, which weighed around three tons, had undergone numerous tests. One of said tests showed similar DNA to that of the mummified Shadow King specimen. Scientists are hoping to study the mass further, but have shown concerns regarding strange pulsating movements the mass had been making lately. Update, the following are notes written by one of the scientists that had been studying the mass back in 2016. The uh, pulsations have become rhythmic and increased tremendously over the course of three weeks. As of the month of November, said pulsations grew so rapidly until the aforementioned mass had ruptured, sending organic material flying in all directions. What happened next to none of us were prepared for. It slowly emerged from the mass, like a butterfly from a cocoon. The creature had to at least be thirty feet in length and fourteen in height. We watched in awe and growing dread as it stretched its massive wings, still dripping wet and glistening with whatever fluids it had been coated in for Lord knows how long. It then turned its attention towards us and attacked, intent on making anything it could into its first meal. Although I and several others managed to escape, a few of our fellow scientists were not so lucky. Upon returning to the site, the creature had escaped and left behind little more than what remained of the mass and some scattered limbs of its victims. End scientist notes. There are no further details on this account, and so ends my story. This tale was written by Chelsea.Adams.524 the Harpy Crow All of us had just got off work from various jobs. Call centers, restaurants, offices. One of us even worked for the RSPB, a nature conservation organization. We had all been friends since high school, and through these meetups our bonds have stayed as strong as they were then. There was a nest of crow hatchlings up a tree near us that would not stop screaming and screeching for their mummy. I turned the conversation to how annoying the little birds were being, and the conversation naturally progressed to how we all hated crows. Before long, some of us were throwing stones and twigs at the nest, me included, with the aim of knocking it down. The only one that wasn't joining in was Gary, who worked at the RSPB. Not only was he angry, but he was scared. Don't hit the nest! He started, surveying the air anxiously. The wrath and vengeance of a mother crow of that particular species is something incredible. Don't tell me you've never heard of a harpy crow. There was a guy who had a nest of harpy crows in his shed, not knowing how wrathful these birds were and thinking them pests, had put down poison mixed with bird seed. The crows ate the mix and all but one of them died. The crow that survived took ill and the man sought to finish it off with a golf club. It put up an awesome fight and disarmed the man before scratching his face and upper body with its talons. The razor-sharp claws cut through his skin like a hot knife through butter. The man looked up to see its face for the first time. It looked more human than crow with pale, featherless skin, a heavy brow and a flat mouth which it opened to reveal a set of gleaming, jagged teeth. The old man would have had his life taken away then and there if it weren't for a neighbor hearing the commotion and coming to his aid. The neighbor managed to kill the crow before it focused its full attention on him. Both men had been very lucky. The first victim especially. The rest of us rolled our eyes, 
In high school, Gary was always telling ghost stories and taking seriously many urban legends and conspiracy theories. None of us knew whether or not the Harpy Crow was a real species of bird, but we all knew the tone of voice Gary used when he was about to explain another silly story. Gary, I interjected before he could get another word out. Nobody cares. And to punctuate my sentence, I threw one more rock at the nest and knocked it clean off the tree. It fell, screaming chicks and all, to the ground with a sickening crunch. Though that wasn't the noise that made me queasy. When the crows got closer to the ground, obviously sensing death, their screams changed from the cries of hungry birds to the cries of frightened children. Frightened. Human. Children. The death of the birds had killed the mood of our meetup completely. There was now an awkward, melancholy tone. The only one who didn't feel guilty was Gary, and he was terrified, eyes still scanning the skies. We all agreed to call it a day and meet up tomorrow. I walked through the park alone, harrowed and haunted by the sound of those young birds. I couldn't stop those few seconds from replaying and replaying over in my head. It was happening to get dark as I continued to tread across the grass and under the trees. I heard a fluttering behind me. When I looked over my shoulder, I saw a black bird perched on a tree, quite high up, simply observing me. I shuddered and carried on. The bird could have simply been minding its own business, but I could feel its eyes fixed directly on me. It was watching me. After Gary's little story, the uneasiness couldn't have come at a worse time. I looked back again, and I hadn't heard the bird move. But it was now perched on a tree closer to me, and lower down, and closer to my level. It's only a bird, I thought. Even if it does attack me with wrath and vengeance, I'll win in the fight. Even with that mantra in my head, I was getting increasingly freaked out and paranoid. The bird was after me. The mantra disappeared. The thought of what would happen if it reached me no longer entered my mind. Simply that it shouldn't. It couldn't. My breathing became staggered, and I quickened my pace. I had to reach home. I would be safe there. I could feel sweat coat my forehead and run down the small of my back. I didn't want to look back again. I didn't. I just wanted to get home, lock the door, and relax in the security of my personal sanctum. I wanted to laugh off this silly little spell of bird fear that had gripped me. I looked over my shoulder. The crow was perched on the branch directly over my head, above where I stood several seconds ago. Now, I could see it properly. Its body and wings were coated in feathers so black that looking at it was like peering at a shape carved from a starless night sky. But its face was even more terrible. Its face was a human's face. It was the Harpy Crow. I stood still, staring at the Harpy Crow in wonder, my body not moving even though my brain willed it. The crow was just as still, almost like a statue. The more I looked at its face, the more it looked like my face, except pale. Its small, beady eyes, devoid of any spark of life or soul, instead jet black, like the eyes of an ordinary crow. The crow broke the tent stalemate by moving forward and opening its mouth, bearing its razor-sharp rows of teeth. Its mouth was far more horrifying and dangerous than any of Gary's stories could give proper justice to. I turned and ran. I had to get back home. I had to. 
My nose was running as I sprinted and my heart was beating so fast that it was causing me pain in my chest. But still I sprinted. I sprinted until my legs protested, until my feet were sore. Relief filled me as I finally reached my front door. I took out my keys, but in my haste and nerves I couldn't slot the right key correctly into the hole. A large part of me wanted to look behind me as I did this, but my reasoning was thankfully strong enough to stop me. I knew it was right behind me. I could feel it. Finally, I got the door open, bolted inside, closed and locked the door and collapsed into my armchair. I didn't move for several minutes as my body calmed down. I looked out of my lounge window, looking for the harpy crow that I knew had been following me. But it was nowhere to be seen. Maybe it was still on the park. Relieved, I went upstairs to my bedroom and switched the computer on. The curious side of me kept urging me to research more about the harpy crow, but I couldn't. I was beginning to work up a small fever, so I opened the window wide and went back to browsing the web. What I needed right now was a distraction. Explanation could wait until I was ready for it. Maybe I'd ask Gary tomorrow if he knew anything else. Nothing else happened until ten at night. I thought I saw something out of the corner of my eye, out of the second floor window. Too scared to look and see, I kept my eyes glued to the PC screen, but no amount of distraction could distract my mind from my returning paranoia. I swallowed and mustered up all of my courage, then I turned to the window and shut it off in one swift, panicked motion. Nothing. There was nothing out there but darkness. Nothing visible in the window, but the reflections of my room of safety and comfort. I sighed with relief, shut it and drew the curtains shut. I then went to sleep. The next morning I drew the blinds back and outside my window, scattered on the ledge, were black feathers. The crow was outside my window last night after all. Then an even more disturbing revelation dawned on me. It wasn't my face's reflection I saw in the window last night. Written by Cyan Writes A huge thank you again to my two contributors, and I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Five stories in total for your lovely ears and nothing quite like a creepy Wednesday night. Now, listeners, I won't keep you, but if you have a couple of seconds spare, leave an iTunes review and let me know what you think of the show. And if you want to donate to this podcast to help with production quality and reaching new podcasting heights, visit patreon.com forward slash sfgt, where you can donate a cup of tea my way each month that goes right back into production. Now, time for my Patreon thank yous. I want to thank my legendary Ode Night Tea Titan, the marvelous Maya. Your donation this week goes straight into Ghost Hack Music Packs. Simply put, these are sound packs designed for studio cinematics, special effects, and quality audio. Thanks to you, I'm able to acquire audio quality things, music, background ambience, sound effects that others would dream of. And in this case, I've used your donation to grab one of the four packs, the largest and most important pack that contains all the folly audio that I'm looking for. Thank you, mate, for being amazing. My white tea warlord, searing and shining Solstra. Thank you immensely for your support. I've pushed your donation straight into folly pack number two so that I can bring all of us object sounds. 
things like glasses cracking, tables being moved, chairs being sat on. With your support, I've been able to get Foley audio without having to edit it back, manipulate it in any way, and bring the utmost highest quality to each episode, this one included. Thank you so, so much, Solstra. You're brilliant. My white tea warlord, Luxurious Leather, Dudio, great to hear from you last weekend, and I'm stoked to be putting your support straight into another Ghost Hack pack of audio, which covers of horror stings, horror backgrounds, and audio beats of different kinds. With your support, I can actually bring in a different tone to my audio, and one that can provide a wider variety of atmospherics to each episode. Cheers, you legend. And my next white tea warlord, Prismatic Page. Page, thank you so much for your support and being your awesome self. I've funneled your support straight into a ghost hack pack as well that enables me to capture some monster sounds, gut sounds, and a myriad of alternate folio audio pieces that would otherwise be tucked away and far out of reach. Thank you, mate, for helping me spruce up each episode from here on in. You are awesome. And my brilliant lightning in a bottle peeps, my Elgrain forces, just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Effeli, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, Leah Fassig, and Alia Arcane. Thank you all for supporting me. You're all bloody marvelous. Have a brilliant Wednesday, and I'll be seeing you Friday, you amazing people. Stay epic, and as always, till next we meet.